Welcome to Season 5 of KnowledgeCast, hosted by Jack Williams. We're excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about this new season along with our guest in previous seasons at jackwwilliams.com slash podcast. Now let's listen in to an all-new episode with Jack and this week's special guest. Well, welcome to our fifth season of KnowledgeCast. Uh, glad that you joined us today, and as always, if you're a first-time listener, we welcome you, and if you're one of our regulars, thanks for coming back. Well, this is part two of our time with Ignacio Montoya. And for those of you who missed our first segment with Ignacio, I'm gonna repeat his introduction so that you can have a better understanding of who our guest is and what he's been through. And it'll take a little bit longer than our normal intro, but uh, when you get into it today, you'll understand why. Well, today we've got the honor of of introducing uh, you to an extraordinary individual, as I said, Ignacio Montoya, Ignacio's life is uh, life story actually is a is just a testament to the indomitable human spirit and the power of resilience. He was born in Cuba and of Portuguese and Spanish descent, and Ignacio has achieved feats that really defy the odds and inspire us all. Uh, he's a fighter pilot, a biomedical engineer, a pathokinesiologist, a researcher. He's entering now his uh, PhD studies in neuroscience at Southern Cal and recently was a space accessibility ambassador. So Ignacio's accomplishments are as diverse as they are uh, awe-inspiring, and he doesn't seem to be stopping or slowing down uh, anytime soon, not even in the face of complete paralysis or death. Let me repeat that, not even in the face of complete paralysis or death. Ignacio's journey took an unexpected turn when a devastating motorcycle accident 10 years ago left him completely paralyzed with only one functioning limb, his left arm. Pronounced dead at the scene for 15 minutes, he defied the odds and woke up from a three-month coma on February 28, 2013. Announcing his return to life through a very simple Facebook post, I am alive, and alive he is, as we're going to see. And after his accident, Ignacio has earned two master's degrees, one in kinesiology to delve into the science of his human movement and another in biomedical engineering, bridging the gap kind of between engineering and medicine. His thirst for challenges has led him to take on other physical activities after his accident. He's engaged in skydiving, scuba diving, flying a fighter jet, water skiing, snow skiing, just to name a few. And his goal is to continue to break down barriers and inspire others to achieve more than they think they are capable of of achieving and what a model he is. So welcome back, Ignacio. Glad to have you back with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, in our last session, we talked uh, a little bit about your accident, but we focused more on your childhood experience of coming to from Cuba with your dad and kind of shared your story up through college and then about when the accident occurred. But let's do this because we've got some people that are listening for the first time. Give a little quick overview of the severity of your injury. And then I want you to talk about the decision that you had to make about dealing with this life-changing injury and resume a normal life and talk about the rehab program that you began. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the accident um, was catastrophic to say the least. I was leaving uh, uh, actually uh, uh, a day of mandatory military training in my uh, Air Force ROTC class. I was about to commission, just uh, uh, weeks away from commissioning. 
and beginning my first assignment as a second lieutenant, uh, undergraduate pilot training at Shepard uh, Air Force Base in Texas. And um, I was excited. I was excited because that's that's what I'd been training for, uh, for those four years. And um, I had accomplished a lot to get there. I was part of, part of uh, one of five selected on, on Valentine's Day, 2012, one of five uh, cadets to be selected for rated pilot slots. So it was very uh, competitive and uh, very distinguished position to have. And I was ready to embark on that journey um, when the accident, like I mentioned, uh, uh, a careless driver made a left turn in front of me as I was riding my motorcycle. Um, I was only 700 feet from turning into my neighborhood and um, I was in uniform. So I was following all the laws and all the traffic uh, indications by the book. I was being very careful, um, very cautious and smart. Um, I rode my motorcycle day, day and night and um, I'd been riding for years. So I had the experience um, and just when I thought I had everything in control, just when I was about to embark on this incredible 10 year commitment as a fighter pilot with the Air Force, um, this careless driver made, made a, a left turn right in front of me as I was riding at 45 miles an hour, um, immediately um, my body slamming uh, within a millisecond against the side of this minivan uh, resulting in a T4, T5 spinal cord injury, ripping all the nerves of my right arm in a brachial plexus injury. That's what it's called, the peripheral nerve injury to the nerves of the right arm, uh, a traumatic brain injury from the three-month-long coma. Um, I mean, it was just one thing after the other, fractured all my all of my ribs. Um, and yeah, I, I was, I ended up going to the ER um flatlined and, and, and pulmonary cardiac arrest. And, um, they tried defibrillators. They tried all the protocols on, in the books. And it wasn't until, um, one of the paramedics, when he arrived at the emergency room, uh, went outside of the protocols and injected me in the heart with two shots of epinephrine. Um, and it's a crazy story because this paramedic, uh, his brother was also in the air force. And I was riding home in my full dress, my service dress uniform coming from this mandatory military training that happened to have, we were, we were practicing, um, I was the honor guard captain and we were doing a change of command ceremony at the end of the semester. We would do that every, every semester. And anyways, I, I was in full dress that day. And, and when this paramedic saw me, he said he felt compelled to keep trying because his brother was also in the in the Air Force, and he would have loved for someone to try the, to the very end if his brother was in a situation like that. Um, and actually, this paramedic, the way the reason we know all this is because the paramedic, 24 hours after dropping me off in the ER, went back to the hospital to meet my family there and and shared this story with them. And he couldn't believe that I that I was still alive. Because that same night, there were three other motorcycle accidents that they had picked up and all were fatalities. But once he hit me in the heart with those two shots of epinephrine, my heart started pumping again, but my mind stayed asleep. My consciousness was 
out of out of out of play and um I didn't come back like you said February 28th 2013 in a different part of the city at Shepherd Center uh one of the top 10 rehabilitation hospitals in the US and and in the world for spinal cord injury and I was blessed to be uh waking up in this uh in this hospital uh because it was renowned and it was it was the best in Atlanta and all of the the this is the um in the US and um especially the southeast uh but the thing is i quickly found out after waking up from this coma and learning about everything that had happened um i quickly saw that i i'd been categorized and these labels had been put on me of what was available for me to do in order to live in order to fight for my recovery and that was i was categorized as someone with a complete spinal cord injury and the word complete versus incomplete is what made the distinction of what physical therapy i would be able to do if any and i quickly saw that because of my severity my spinal cord injury being a complete spinal cord injury meaning i had no sensation no voluntary movement uh or function below the break that meant that insurance companies would not reimburse for therapy and that i would not be able to participate in almost anything to fight for my recovery and the first thing that i asked the doctors was well if i'm categorized as a complete spinal cord injury how do i go from complete to incomplete how do i recover and how can i move that needle from you giving me a 1% chance of prognosis of ever recovering anything for the rest of my life how can i make that 1% 2 3 and up and and improve my my quality of life and these are questions that this was a physician that had been working in the he was the head doctor at shepherd center and individuals that had been working in this field for 20 30 40 years and they didn't even have the slightest uh uh answer to be able to help me to to encourage me to at least give me a a guide a, a plan an idea of what to do it was just an answer of whatever you'll get back is uh, what you'll get back you'll get during the first two years once the swelling from all the trauma and the spinal cord goes down if you're going to get back any sensation if you're going to get back any movement or function you'll get it back within those first two years automatically and and that was it and um that didn't sit too well with me having shared with you about my story of coming from cuba the perseverance perseverance the 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 finding a way forward the knocking on doors and and being persistent in life and achieving becoming selected as a as a pilot for for the air force um that didn't sit too well with me because in my mind i was still that fighter pilot and i was going to tackle and i was going to combat spinal cord injuries and paralysis and the word and the concept of disability with the same tenacity discipline force that i was going to be a, a fighter pilot an officer in the united states air force and they, uh, they didn't know who they didn't know who they were dealing with did they exactly exactly <laughs> Well, let me ask you this: You, uh, 
uh, you, I learned some stuff that I didn't know uh, that you just shared. <clears throat> you, you had no use of your right arm. Tell us why you chose the robotic arm and what it allowed you to do. How did that come about? Absolutely. Um, so once I wake up from the coma, you know, I, I asked, I shared that I, the doctor said the 1% chance, uh, the colonel uh, from my Air Force unit showed up that week. He, he told me the date of December, December 4th, 2020, the day after my 30th birthday. Um, I was 22. I just turned 22 one day after the accident. Uh, I was 22 years old. He told me, and, and I told him when the doctor said, you have a 1% chance, he was in the room actually. And he heard this and I told him and I said, well, uh, Colonel, Colonel Bevins, how, how can I, if I have a 1% chance, that's, that's all I need. Because remember that 1% is signified most of the things in my life and that I've either pursued and, or the blessings that have come about. And I've felt part of the 1% in that if 1% was, was there, that anything could be possible because I'm, that's, that's just how I am. And, and I had the, the faith that I would be able to find the other 99. So I told Colonel Bevins, I said, can you please give me a date, a deadline, a suspense date of by when I'll be able to return to my fighter pilot slot? Because I worked hard for that. And, and, I, and I, I didn't want to let that go. And more than anything, my officer commission as a second lieutenant, even if I didn't get a chance to to uh, to re-enter as a fighter pilot, at least I'd do my four-year commission as a second lieutenant um, to to finish what I started. I, I never like to leave things not not finished. And um, and he said, well, December fourth, twenty twenty. If we can get waivers, we can we can ask uh, generals and individuals to help with waivers and things. And if you can get it get back on your feet by December 4th, 2020, then we, we can talk. And, and I made that, I'm so thankful for that because that became my vision. That date, I literally printed it and I put it on my wall in my bedroom. And that, that was my focus. I was in a, I was in a, in my mind, I was in a, a wartime scenario where that was my target and it was uh um it was that mentality and that that way of thinking that really kept me focused and not 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 become uh mentally paralyzed because it, it was very difficult at the beginning um, I left that hospital with the mindset of I'm a fighter pilot. I'm going to knock on doors before the one year mark of this accident. I'm sure I'll be on my feet. And as months were coming closer and I, I was knocking on doors, I was going to all world experts and I was just getting no and no and no. And I was understanding the severity of what a spinal cord injury and the nervous system and how that works um depression hit me but that was 
about eight, nine months after the accident. Um, and, and that's, that's when I also, I, I believe I mentioned in the, in the other talk that I had two doors, two doors to go through, whether the one to implement everything that I had lived through, everything that I had learned in the Air Force to implement that into my day-to-day life and fight for survival and, and, and not let all these secondary complications that were just piling up one on top of the other, whether it's pressure sores, bone density loss, issues with circulation. Um, I mean, it, metabolic rate, it was just one on top of the other. And the human body is just not meant to be still sitting down in, in a chair, in a wheelchair uh, for short term. Yeah, but not for the rest of your life, not for long term. Your body just starts breaking apart and, and deteriorating, which is the best word. And um, I had to, I had one or two doors continue down the road of crying every single day and being depressed and, and, and wondering and asking God, why did I come back after being clinically dead and in a coma for three months and, and whether um, you know, continuing down that road or or implementing everything that I had learned. And it was my uncle that came from Miami for val- for um, Thanksgiving 2013. Um, he came f- to Atlanta and it was a two hour conversation I had with my uncle, uh, my dad's brother, that really woke me up and got me got me onto the right track. And, and he told me, well, look, look at it where we've come from. And everything that that you've achieved so far in your life, now that you've faced your war, your enemy, now that you've become, because uh, um, I would tell them, I, I feel like I've become a prisoner of war within my own body because I can't move and I can't feel. And um, and he said, well, now that you're in, in the war scenario that you'd been preparing for as an officer, now is your time to fight. Either that or... Or, or let the paralysis win. And um, based on what this careless driver that made a left turn in front of you and, and killed you on the spot. And after that conversation with my uncle, I got to work and I wiped the tears. And um, that was the best anti-depression medicine that I could have ever had. I got rid of all the medications I had. I was taking about 10 to 12 pills a day um, that were for all sorts of different things that weren't really helping me with my quality of life and my day to day. And I started doing research on every one of those medications before I just got off of them to really understand why I was taking those meds and how they could help me. And I, I literally got rid of every single one because I understood that my situation was more severe and more complicated than what any medication would be able to help me with. And I decided to, to build a mental, a mental callus of, of, of fighting forward and finding a way forward. And, and that's what led me to, to first innovating with my right arm. So I started doing research. I became an exploratory researcher myself. Um, I had no chemistry, no health sciences background. All I had was a bachelor's in business administration that I was one semester from finishing. So I, I went immediately back to school after leaving the hospital within two months. 
actually, I escaped uh, Shepherd Center one of the days <laughs> therapy. I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I escaped Shepherd Center and I went to Georgia Tech while I was at Shepherd Center and and um, I, I enrolled for classes because that's when I had found out that my injury was complete. So all the physical therapy that would be offered to me at Shepherd Center or any any hospital was just to sit at the edge of a mat and to work on my trunk balance. And 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 that would be impossible because of the, the asymmetry that I had in, in my right arm. My right arm was completely paralyzed. So I presented with a neuromuscular uh, asymmetry where my right arm was flaccid and paralyzed. So all of my weight my would fall to the left because my left arm was bigger, sure. and healthier, and I had more muscle mass. So I would be put to do these seemingly impossible tasks at the edge of a mat. And that was the only physical therapy that was offered to me. And I would see the local mats, the exoskeletons, the electrical stimulation bicycles, all of this top of the line equipment that really can transform uh, uh, someone's health and better and optimize their chances of recovering, whether they have an incomplete or a complete injury. And I would be told by the therapist and everyone there, sorry, but because you have a complete injury, you don't qualify. You don't qualify. And how did you, that's what what led me to become an exploratory research because clinically, Nothing was available. So I had no choice but to go down the research arena. So you, you get the robotic arm. Now, how did you get them to the, the local mat is just an amazing piece of equipment. Describe that. And how did you how did you work your way over to be able to uh, get to use that? And how did it help you? Absolutely. Well, I want to mention of the robotic arm. I I. I did my research and I saw that there was a lot of myoelectric technology being developed for individuals that had upper limb, upper extremity impairments, but not necessarily for those categorized as brachial plexus injuries, which is what I have, what I was uh, diagnosed with. Three of the five peripheral nerves that, that come in each upper extremity, three of those five had ripped from where they connect to the spinal cord. So there was no way to reattach those peripheral nerves to my spinal cord. And the other two that remained were slightly injured as well. So it was a severe just cut off from the peripheral nerves of my right arm. And, you know, I was thinking outside of the box, always looking for a way forward. Uh, I had no insurance backing me up. I always had to find a way to, to, you know, had that mentality to, to find a way forward and to survive. And I saw this technology being developed um, in combination and collaboration with the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And I flew to, to, to the Mayo Clinic and I started um, participating in different studies, evaluating this myoelectric sensors for these brachial plexus injuries that had some innervation And the only way that I qualified for it was because six months after my accident, after the doctor, um, actually he was a doctor of Shepherd Center um, whose parents were Cuban and and he was a second generation Cuban American and he was a doctor at Shepherd Center. 
help uh, that did the surgery for my, for my right arm, for the um, uh, nerve transfer. And he transferred a nerve from my intercostal nerves from my ribs and my trap muscle transferred both of those nerves to my bicep and something, some Frankenstein surgery I had not never heard of. And they took a nerve from here and there and reattach them to, to, to the, what they call the uh, musculocutaneous nerve uh, with hopes to one day be able to regain elbow, elbow flexion. And it was, it was through that, that I was able to demonstrate when I went to the Mayo Clinic, when I presented this idea out of the blue, I said, well, what if brachial plexus injuries may use this robotic arm called the Mayo Pro? How, what if, you know, I had a nerve transfer six months post-injury, I have some nerve innervation. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't, honestly, I didn't know whether the nerves were growing. The doctor told me that, you know, it'd be a slow process that nerves grow about a millimeter a day, that it would take years for the nerves to grow from my uh, axilla to all the way down to my fingers. Um, and, and it's been like that. And anyways, um, but I, I presented the idea and, and they took me up for it. And I tried that robotic arm and I would think of my arm, flexing my arm and extending my arm and the arm wouldn't move. And it wasn't until I said, well, the nerve came from my right pectoralis, my pec muscle, my chest. Let me think about squeezing my chest. Uh, I mean, I was, I'd already tried this robotic arm for like 15, 20 minutes and just having it on so tight um, was unbearable because of the hypersensitivity that I'd have in my right arm. And, but I, but I wanted to keep trying and I started thinking about my pec muscles, contracting my pec muscles because I could do that with my left pec. Um, and my, so I started doing that and the robotic arm just started moving and the hands. Oh, that's crazy. It was that's crazy. So I had to reprogram my mind to start thinking of that nerve, not as my pec, but as my bicep. And I've been able to do that. I now, when I put that robotic arm, I just think about the arm and the arm extends and flexes. So I, I, I've, I've, under, I've come to understand neuroplasticity at the cellular level and how to not just read about it and tell people about it, but to experience it myself and be able to demonstrate to the Society for Neuroscience in a presentation that's going to be seen by millions of people, what really means or how you can really optimize such and such breakthroughs in neuroscience through self-experiment. And um, that's what then led me to the locomat because I said, well, now I have the robotic arm. I'm using it to extend. They, they gave it to me. I brought it back down to Atlanta. Um, and that, that allowed me to, to develop this protocol where I was exercising every single day, doing um, five sets of 25 extensions, uh, 25 flexions. And um, I'd wear it as much as I could for about 30 minutes. But again, that hypersensitivity eventually, even though I'd get the blood flowing in the arm, that hypersensitivity uh, was still just really, really unbearable. But so, I, but, but 30 minutes was better than nothing. And I'd do it in the morning and in the evening. 
So I felt like I had control over one of the major injuries, which was the brachial plexus injury when I had that robotic arm. And then simultaneously, I was moving on to, to the legs, to, to, to walking, to standing. And um, I started researching and found out that there were these paralysis recovery centers, these outpatient paralysis community centers that cost $100 an hour to go do any paralysis uh, uh, recovery exercises and, and not calling it therapy uh, because they're not licensed PTs and OTs, but it's, to, in my opinion, it's even better than the therapy that's offered in the hospitals because it's, it's individuals that are out of the box thinkers that have you working on all sorts of muscles and all sorts of exercises um, while being safe and cautious and, and, and trained. And um, I couldn't afford a hundred dollars an hour of therapy um, cause I needed at least three days of therapy, three hour, four hour sessions. So, I mean, just, just in a week, it was, it was, it was something that I couldn't afford. And um, so I said, well, I just finished this last semester of my bachelor's in business administration. Let me see if I can put this degree to use. So I, I, I became the executive director of a paralysis recovery center in order to be compensated with free therapy. And I did, <laughs> I did that for 10 months and I couldn't be compensated with, with money because I would lose my, my insurance, my, my, my insurance that was Medicaid and Medicare um, in Georgia. And, um, and I was receiving more than hundred thousand dollars a year, a hundred thousand. You just did a trade-off. Exactly. Exactly. And so I put to use that, that, that bachelor's degree. And, um, I did that for nine months and then I, uh, stepped out and then pursued the master's in biomedical engineering at Georgia tech. Now for this master's in at Georgia tech, it was right around the time that, um, Ross Mason, um, and, and his contacts and family members and friends, uh, donated a local mat to him for him to have in his house, the first local mat in the world that was outside of a hospital and in someone's home. And in the basement of the house, we created a whole mini paralysis recovery center. Everything that I'd learned during those nine months of me being the executive director of this paralysis recovery center, I wanted to implement in Ross's basement in a small scaled down version and create my own laboratory as he allowed me to do. And he said, we have this locomat. I brought in standing frames, an FES, an electrical stimulation bicycle um, that I was able to do a 5K fundraiser and, and raise money for. Um, and I brought all this equipment and we got the locomat. And I said, well, the locomat has never been tested on an individual with a complete injury with 100% weight bearing. People are always, well, PTs and individuals in the medical field normally do not put uh, individuals with complete injuries with 100% weight bearing on the locomat with walk while walking. The locomat is this robotic exoskeleton that's suspended over a treadmill and it stays in place and it walks the individual on the treadmill um, and it has a, a body weight support system that allows you to measure how much 
body weight of the individual is, is on the treadmill while you're stepping. And, um, and I said, well, I start. I created a protocol called the, uh, uh, three, 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 three hours a day, three days a week for three months with nothing else. No, just complete non-invasive. And, um, after that first protocol, I then did a four, five, six, four hours a day, five days a week for six months. And these protocols were part of the projects that I did for my master's at Georgia okay. Tech. So I was able to integrate so many things at once, my academia, with my passion, with my recovery, with the things that I've learned uh, during the nine months that I was the executive director of the Paralysis Recovery Center. And I was doing everything non-invasive, um, but pushing my body, my nervous system to the limits. And I said, well, if, if I can get 100% weight bearing, and I checked my bone density beforehand to make sure that I wasn't doing anything that was going to injure me even more. I checked and I had amazing bone density because from the very beginning, I stood. I stood every single day for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening to make sure that my, my bones didn't get brittle and, and break easily whenever it is that I got a chance uh, to get in an XO or walk. And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I've taught, I've said a lot. Uh, I, well, I got, I, to- I, I keep using the word incredible. I just don't know any other word, uh, to use, uh, in, in terms of what the way you use yourself as a case study, uh, and combine your academics, like you said, to apply it, you know, to a case study of one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, it's what's allowed me to be my own researcher. And, and after that protocol of walking on the locomat for all those many hours with a hundred percent weight bearing, I was able to develop sensations when I went to the bathroom, when I needed to go to the bathroom to do number one, number two, I got bladder sensations. I, I, I was able to find on Amazon, a clip, a, a clamp that I was able to put in, um, that's normally used for, for IVs to stop, uh, the fluid, you know, a fluid going into an IV going into someone. And I put these clips on my catheter to prevent continuous flow of urine into these urine collection bags. Cause I quickly found out that my bladder is, my bladder is a muscle and it was just atrophying by having this, this, this catheter inserted that continuously. And, and the bladder was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And uh, it, it didn't have to work. Exactly. Yeah, it, it didn't have, have to work. Anything. It didn't expand and it just atrophied like crazy. And whenever I was finally healthy enough to go scuba diving and go swimming, I didn't want to go with a catheter connected to a pee bag. I wanted to go <laughs> swimming normal, as normal as I could. And, and, and that's when I quickly found out, oh, my bladder is tiny. So, so I did a, a while I was doing, while I was walking on the treadmill with the locomat, um, I developed a, simultaneously a protocol where I would clamp the catheter to let the urine fill in the bladder. And whenever I would feel a sensation of bladder fullness, I would immediately open the clamp. And that was connected to, a, to an external pee bag, an external bladder per se. Right. So, so that training of closing that clamp and opening it mixed with this, you know, hundred percent weight bearing 
at two kilometers per hour, two hours nonstop uh, sessions on the locomat really woke up my nervous system. And I started, even though I have a sev- the most severe spinal cord injury, a complete uh, uh, injury, it started waking my nervous system up and I started feeling when I needed to go to the bathroom, number two uh, and number one and my bladder fullness. And, and I would feel uh, a bit of, a little bit of proprioception and, and where my body is in space as I would look at myself in the mirror, because well, I put a mirror right in front of the locomat to also help with the visualization of training, of seeing yourself walk. So it was something that I attacked from every angle that I could, and I integrated that into my master's in biomedical engineering. Now, once I graduated from that incredible opportunity, I was on the news, uh, Georgia Tech did an incredible video about me and my story, I was able to meet my childhood hero, Orestes Lorenzo, the fighter pilot who who, uh, saw my story and reached out to me, invited me to go to his house and and fly in his own uh, fighter jet, his L-39 Czechoslovakian Albatross fighter jet. He even gave me a certificate at the end of my flight saying, you've completed your first uh, fighter pilot training flight. Uh, It was it was beautiful. And he let me fly. Plane. Yeah, I was able to pull all paralyzed and with one hand, one arm. He got me, he picked me up with a uh, a, a forklift, picked me up out of the wheelchair because uh, he, he owns a construction company as well. So he had forklifts laying around and picked me up out of the wheelchair, put me inside the jet. And um, I was able to pull five G's doing acrobatic maneuvers upside down, uh, doing the Cuban eight, the infinity sign. Uh, I don't know why it's called Cuban eight, but he was like, <laughs> I've never heard that term. I, yeah. And, and we did all these acrobatic maneuvers and um, it was, it was an incredible moment that I'll never, ever forget. And, and that's after that moment uh, that led me to going to the Shirley Ryan ability lab in Chicago, the number one rehabilitation hospital in, 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 in the world, in my opinion. Um, and that's where I met Dr. Reggie Edgerton. He was having a symposium. Uh, actually, they were celebrating his five decades of being a world expert in paralysis recovery and in spinal cord injury research uh, out of UCLA. And actually, one of his students, who's the now the director of the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, is the one that put together this this symposium and this celebration of Dr. Edgerton. And I was already supposed to go to Chicago for a different, uh, unrelated uh, situation. I was going to the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab to meet with a, another researcher who had just moved there from the Miami Project to cure paralysis. Her name is Dr. Monica Perez, an incredible uh, researcher. Um, and I was supposed to meet her on, on a on a Wednesday, uh, but I was and and her secretary told me, well, don't come on on Monday because that Monday there's a symposium, um, and I and I asked, oh well, who's the symposium? Um, could I find out what's the symposium about? And she told me, oh, it's about Dr. Reggie Edgerton. They're celebrating his five decades of research, this and that, and and I said, well. I need to go to Chicago earlier than I thought then. And I changed the <laughs> flight 
headed over to Chicago and um, it was a, initially it was just a symposium just for doctors and 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 uh, uh, but I had just graduated with my master's in biomedical engineering and I had my credentials and my badges from from going to different hospitals around Atlanta to be able to do observations and and things like that. And I was, I flashed my, my credentials and I said, biomedical engineer from Georgia Tech. And they just let me right in. And I was able to go. You probably, you probably were more qualified than some of the other doctors were there. You had more experience than some of them. Well, now, Joe, as we close out this uh, incredible story, I I want to, uh, I want you to to share with the, our audience, uh, you married a beautiful young lady and, and, in a typical Ignacio style, you proposed to her in a little different format than most people. Uh, tell about that. Yeah, 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 a little different. Um, so part of part of my my mission, um, like I said, is how can I make this situation? Um, how can I make the most of this situation and not let paralysis and and disability, you know, take take me mentally, spiritually, physically. And, and that's why I always said I, I'm, I'm paralyzed and mobility impaired, but, but I don't feel disabled and I don't live my life disabled. And um, I first um, jumped out of an airplane on the 1,000th day after being paralyzed, after this injury. I made it a goal when I woke up from that coma, I said, I, I, need to ha- I need to have taken my very first step forward in an exoskeleton through a miracle surgery or, or, or some kind of innovation, uh, be able to be on my feet, stepping, uh, taking one step forward before the 1,000 day of being paralyzed. And I did. I was able to do that on day 835 at the Roper St. Francis Hospital in South Carolina by a company called Rewalk, uh, an exoskeleton that actually three months before the accident in my Air Force um, leadership training classes, I gave a briefing. I was out of the blue. Every student was given a random topic. I was given the topic of how exoskeletons were being used in the military. And I gave a presentation and I spoke about that company, Rewalk Exoskeletons, that they were used in the military, but also now in the healthcare sector. And when I woke up from the coma, I reached out to that company. I just filled out a form on their website, never heard back from them till day 835, that very same day. Um, I, I uh, was contacted by that company. And, and anyways, I was invited to South Carolina to try their exoskeleton at that hospital and it was a, a moment of confirmation that I needed um, to know that I was on the right track of becoming an exploratory research scientist. And um, to celebrate on the 1000 day, I jumped out of an airplane from, from um, it was about 16,000 feet. Um, and it was higher than the clouds. And um, it was, it was a, an incredible event. And I said, um, I'm going to meet that December 4th, 2020 deadline that I had mentioned that I told Colonel Bevins that that would be my deadline, my go-to, um, the date that I, the suspense date that I would surely meet. And, um, you know, as that date kept getting closer and closer, I, I told myself, um, 
um, I'm either I'm either I'm either going to be able to reverse this paralysis and transform and get out of this wheelchair, transform my quality of life or or fall in love, because that's going to be the only way that I'm going to be able to make it till December 5th, 2020. Um, and and I did. I fell in love uh, with with the first woman that I met on my way to California, uh, to Los Angeles, to start working with Dr. Edgerton after I met him at that symposium. Um, and we had an amazing two hour conversation about everything that I was pursuing and, and the things that Henry being a chief scientific officer of Henry Labs was allowing me to do. And um, I moved to Los Angeles. I fell in love with Hilda who had just uh, moved to the United States from Colombia uh, a few years before that. She's a, a model. She's also a, a, an industrial engineer. Um, and she was also a physical therapy assistant in, in her country. Um, so she had an incredible background and, and yeah, we, all the boxes there. Yeah. We connected. It was, it was incredible. And, um, and I, I took her to Atlanta to meet my family and um, I took her out to to where I went skydiving, but I didn't tell her anything. And I, I jumped out of the airplane um, with the ring in, in my pocket. And as I landed, uh, you know, it was filmed by Channel 2 News and everyone. And a big banner uh, was put behind her. Um, Will you marry me? And I landed and, and put the ring on her finger uh, that way. But but living, living life to the fullest. And I wanted, I've always wanted to demonstrate that to Hilda, my wife, to society, to my family, to my friends, because of the paralysis, because of the disability, um, that doesn't stop me from still living life to the fullest. And that's part of my mission as well. Demonstrating that accessibility is possible, defining what accessibility really means whether it's scuba diving, skydiving, flying a fighter jet, getting my light sport, light sport pilot's license, uh, becoming an accessibility ambassador for, for space and being able to go to zero gravity uh, with, with uh, an, a space organization, whether it's NASA or Blue Origin, SpaceX, uh, whichever way, whichever opportunity ends up opening up, but it's, but it's, it's that demonstrating that with love, with faith, and with perseverance, nothing is impossible. Absolutely nothing. Ignacio, I tell you, to say it's been a pleasure spending time with you on these two episodes would be a major understatement. And, you know, we're just so grateful that you uh, gave up your time, because I know the demands on your time to tell your incredible story of determination and innovation and education and restoration. And I speak for all of our listeners uh, in saying that we want to wish you ongoing progress in your physical accomplishments, um, with your work at Henry, uh, continuing to share your story and your life with your new bride. You are an incredible young man uh, whose story will change more lives than you'll ever know. And so thank you for sharing it with with us today. Absolutely. And, and, and thank you for having me. And, and I, I just want to end with this, that right now I'm, I'm applying for my PhD in neuroscience at USC. Um, and 
and I'm going to become a neuroscientist and I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue pushing the envelope because my voice is, is not just for me anymore. It's, it's for millions, millions of individuals all throughout the world that still want to live um, and still uh, want to have love, faith and, and perseverance in everything they do. Well, what a voice it is. Well, if you first are, if you missed our first interview with Ignacio, make sure, I'm, I don't think I even have to tell you this, but make sure you go back and listen to it. You'll be glad that you did and get caught up. And uh, folks, listen, thanks for being with us again and, and make sure that you are just like Ignacio and being a positive influence in the lives of others.